17, it is on page 75, the church Bible, otherwise you can follow it on this wall. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock to die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go within the front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in you in your hand the staff with which you stuck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And Psalm 95. Let us come before him with thanksgiving, and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King of all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks below belong to him. The sea he is his, for he made it, and his hands, and his hands formed the dirty dry land. Come, let us bow down worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. A question to start with. To whom are we just singing? How does the metrical version of that psalm we just sung open? Or actually look at the psalm in your Bible, if you like, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. We were actually singing to one another, weren't we? Psalm 95 is a call to worship rather than direct worship itself. God's people are addressing one another. Although the theme is worship, come let us worship, verse 6, and we could also say that there's an element of direct worship to the Lord. 
When we sing versions of Psalm 95, we're really singing to one another as much to the Lord. We are, if you like, exhorting one another as much as we are exalting the Lord. Come, let us worship. Is this something what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 5.19 when he writes, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Although he does go on to say, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Come, let us worship, says the psalmist in verse 6. But how are we to worship? This psalm should help us. It's not so much giving direct worship to God as giving directions about the worship of God. And I want briefly to highlight three ways that it tells us how to worship the Lord. Two are fairly obvious. The third we might not always think of as worship. So let's start off by noticing that we are to worship by rejoicing in the Lord. And I'm looking particularly at verses 1 to 5. We should, says the psalmist, come before the Lord with rejoicing. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. And in our rejoicing, we are to do so, we read in verse 2, with thanksgiving, which implies that we should be, in our worship, thanking God for what he's done for us. A sentiment that's echoed quite explicitly in Psalm 92, verse 4. You make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at the work what your hands have done. Now, it's good, isn't it, to stop and think about the things for which we can thank God. Not far from Putney Bridge, not so far from where we now live, is an impressive 17th century building on the banks of the Thames called Winchester House. You enter it by some magnificent iron gates into which are wrought the words in capitals, Think and Thank. So let me set you a little exercise, a little think and thank exercise that someone once suggested to me. You might wish to discipline yourself to do it sometime, maybe regularly. I I haven't kept it up. Perhaps there's an exhortation for me to do so. Start off each day by thinking of three or more things for which you can thank God. Or as an alternative, maybe, or in addition, maybe, You could end the day, however tough that day might have been for you, and in the spirit of count your blessings, try to think of three or more things for which you can, despite everything else maybe, give thanks for that day. It might be the simplest of things. It might be a good good discipline to stop and think and thank this way, especially if you're tempted, as I can be, to to bemoan your lot. Even the bad experiences of life might provide an opportunity to give thanks. A man once stole Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator and preacher, stole his wallet. He'd been challenged by those words, in everything give thanks, not long before, apparently. But in reflecting on this incident, Henry said, well, first of all, I'm thankful that he never robbed me before, Secondly, I'm thankful that although he took my wallet, he did not take my life. 
Thirdly, although he took all I had, it wasn't much. <laughs> and fourthly, I'm glad that I was the one who was robbed and not the one doing the robbing. The one who did the robbing. Someone has commented, Matthew Henry knew how to make lemonade out of a lemon. How to be grateful despite a bad experience. Yes, we need to stop and think, to count our blessings and name them one by one, as the hymn puts it, and then to offer thanksgiving to the Lord, but not only for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but most of all for his being, as it says of him in verse 4, the rock of our salvation. And it is our salvation that the high the psalmist particularly highlights here in verse 1. And of course, in the light of the New Testament, we know that the Bible calls our salvation so great a salvation, it consists of what the Apostle Paul describes as every spiritual blessing in Christ, in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Those words actually sum up what Paul goes to unpack in verses 4 to 14 of that chapter, one long sentence in the Greek. I once heard a preacher say that there are 12, actually it's Robin Asko, so you can ask. I heard Robin Asko once say there are 12 spiritual blessings mentioned there. I haven't actually counted them, but you can check the number. You could try counting your spiritual blessings rather than sheep with the help of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. One way I like to think of that passage is like a string of pearls and a thread. And the thread being Christ, because they're all linked to Christ. We have each of them in him or through him because of our union with the Lord Jesus. But I need to move on because although we should give thanks for what the Lord has done for us, I don't think the psalmist's emphasis here is really so much on what the Lord has done for us. Although we are to rejoice with thanksgiving, which implies what he's done for us, but actually what he says is that we are in effect to rejoice in the Lord for who he is. Because it goes on to say in verse 3, you read um, in verse in Psalm 95 at the beginning, come let us sing for joy to the Lord, and then jump over to verse 3, for what? The Lord is the great God. Or put it another way, we should not only Rejoice with thanksgiving for what God has done, but rejoice with adoration for who the Lord is. Have you heard of the Acts of Prayer? A-C-T-S. Acts for adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. So it might be good for us to pause and consider who the Lord is in his glorious being, his holiness, his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, his love. Some words of Psalm 27 might come to mind. One thing I asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. God deserves our worship just for who he is, doesn't he? We mustn't think of him simply as someone who's only there to satisfy what we want. That's his job, if you like, to satisfy what we want. To put it another way, we mustn't treat the Lord simply as a means to our own ends, but as he is in fact the chief end of all things, as Gerald will remind you, as Murphy will remember. 
I came across a saying of Alexander the Great in which he was comparing two of his courtiers. I think it went something like this. Craterus loves me because I am king, Alexander, but Hyphestion loves me as Alexander. The first courtier had, in Alexander's estimation, what we might call cupboard love. You only love me because of what I give you kind of love. To me, that's the essence of the so-called prosperity gospel, which sadly uh, has taken root in many places. It's all about covered love for God. God is this great slot machine, the cosmic genie in the lamp, there in effect just to serve us to such followers of the false gospel. We could apply some words of the Apostle Paul. They suppose gain is godliness. In utter contrast, we find in the Bible and indeed in church history, Examples of people who are rejoicing in the Lord himself just for being who he is and despite experiencing the most challenging of circumstances. I think, for example, of the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 4, verse 4, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And for always, in his present circumstances, for Paul, that meant, well, he's got at the time, he writes that, he's got other preachers who are trying to make things more difficult for him. And that is more difficult than they already are. He's also deeply troubled to the point of tears about the wrecking influence of false teachers. On top of that, he's grieved over two, two of his fellow workers who have fallen out big time. And on top of that, not to mention the fact, that is, that he's under house arrest as a prisoner and awaiting a trial that might, in which, in which hangs his life. His life is hanging in the balance at that time. And yet note he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Oh, I think going to the Old Testament of the prophet Habakkuk. Similarly has no happy circumstances as such in which to rejoice, but who can nevertheless write, as he does at the end of his prophecy, Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes in the vine. Though the petrol stations are all closed and the supermarket shelves are nearly empty, though the banks are all going bankrupt, the internet's completely hacked by foreign cyber attacks and there's a deadly new pandemic, I will rejoice in, the, in, in God my Saviour, the Sovereign Lord is my strength. If that contemporary paraphrasing rings a bell with some of you, that's because I got the idea from Victor. Um, who updated that passage along similar lines in a Bible study he did here some years ago on a Wednesday night. Well, of course, I've just given you my very loose dynamic equivalent paraphrase of Habakkuk's confession, but I wonder how many of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters or Christ Christians living in Gaza find themselves in just that sort of situation right now. Only they would need to add things like, and to our cities being bombed to smithereens, we find ourselves refugees with little more than the clothes we're wearing. And as our Ukrainian sisters might add, separated from our husbands, our fathers and sons whom we've had to leave fighting for our freedom from unsolicited foreign occupation. God in his goodness may at times give an especially vivid and precious experience of who he is for the comfort of those who are in extreme uh, trouble. I think, for example, of the joyous deaths of the martyrs uh, joyous in spite of their being subjected to extreme suffering or 
Think of the joyous testimony of some believers on their deathbeds. I pray that God may grant such experiences to our fellow believers in Afghanistan or in North Korea or in Nigeria or in Manipur or in Myanmar or in Iran or in Eritrea and so the list could go on. But I prayed also and we surely do pray that their outward circumstances might also improve. Now coming back to Psalm 95 after that digression, its author focuses upon the Lord's unique and supreme greatness that far eclipses all rival phony gods. He alone is the creator, we're told, and the ruler of this world. And you'll already have noticed that there's nothing half-hearted or routine about the psalmist's worship, is there? His worship is joyful, celebratory, even exuberant. There's certainly nothing dour or sour-faced about it. The psalmist will exhort us to worship with rejoicing in the Lord. And yet, as a second way to worship, I note that he would seek to balance rejoicing in the Lord by exhorting us to worship with reverence for the Lord. I'm looking particularly now, coming down to verses 6 to the first part of verse 7. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. Bow down, says the psalmist. Let's remember that the Lord is the Almighty, not the Almighty. Yet at the same time, he is our God, says the psalmist. He's our covenant redeemer, as well as our almighty creator. He's the one who gently shepherds, as we read, gently shepherds in we read verse 7, gently shepherds the flock under his care. There can therefore be intimacy as well as the need for reverence. And that reminds me of the Lord's Prayer we just offered. We are directed to come to our Father in heaven. He is our Father. So there's intimacy. We can dare to call him Father. Even the intimate Abba, dear Father. So we can come to him readily. As children running readily and unabashedly to their earthly parent, assuming, of course, that that parent is lovable and approachable, as not all are, sadly. Yet he is our Father in heaven. So we should come to him reverently, as well as readily. As the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, God is in heaven, and you are on earth, let your words be few. God is still today as Isaiah saw him to be, the Lord who is high and lifted up, before whom the very seraphim, the highest beings, veil their faces in reverence. And as John tells us in John 12 and verse 41, Isaiah actually saw Jesus' glory. It was Jesus he saw. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, he alone has declared him. And speaking of John, that same apostle who tells us in his gospel that he leaned on Jesus' breast when the Lord was here, tells us in his book of Revelation that when he saw the risen Lord in all his glory, he fell at his feet as one dead. And then the Lord said, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. Yes, we are to worship with reverence as well as with rejoicing. Yet if you'll forgive me for repeating myself, we can at the same, yes, we can do both, both reverence with reverence and and with rejoicing and intimacy. Martin Luther seems to have got the balance right. Said a friend of him, I heard him in prayer. It was with so much reverence, as if he were speaking to God. 
yet with so much confidence as if he were speaking to his friend. So we should worship by rejoicing in the Lord, particularly focusing on verses 1 to 5, with reverence for the Lord, particularly looking at verses 6 and the first part of 7. Finally, we come to the way which you may not think initially to be worship. We should worship, as I'm going to put it, by responsiveness to the Lord. Verse 7b to 11. It seems to me that this psalm reaches its climax in these verses, 7 to 11. And unless my thinking is completely off the wall, it also seems to me that in a sense that's what happens here every Lord's Day when we meet. We move towards the preaching of God's word. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that what goes before the sermon is less important. Mere preliminaries, as I've sadly heard them called. They are vital parts of worship. And I'm certainly not ignoring the fact that we meet together for fellowship as well as for worship, which sometimes we can overlook. Not like one church I know of where at the end of the sermon everybody filed out as they were coming out of school assembly. No names, no patrol. Some of you may know what I'm referring to. Now, the word translated to hear, in this, as we have it in verse 7, can't, no, no, sorry, sorry, but yes, yeah, second half of verse 7, today, if you would hear his voice, it says, that word actually, in the original, doesn't simply mean hear, it, has, it has, means hear with a view to responding to God. It means not just to attend to what's said, it also contains the thought of obeying what God is saying to us. And so we might unpack that, what that means, and I'm going to do so in four stages. Firstly, and I've said that we should, as James would put it, not be hearers only, but ready to obey God's word, we do need to start at the hearing stage, which means that if we are properly to respond to God's voice, we need to listen to God's word. We must begin with listening to God's word. That's what we're thinking about this morning. Remember, listen was my text in Mark 4. It's possibly sitting where you are and not really listening. Now, adults learn to disguise their in, inattention. Not always very well. You can look around sometimes and, uh, and, and see that some who don't. I remember once my predecessor had to ask somebody to wake up another if they had the gift of nudging. <laughs> uh, so I'm reliably informed. Now, inattention may be the preacher's fault. And if it is, it would be good if such were... If, if there were such a place as preacher's purgatory in the afterlife for a boring preacher to be sentenced to several millennia listening non-stop to his own sermons. But there is no such place as purgatory, thankfully, for the boring preacher. Short of that, though, what do you do with a boring preacher? I suggest, tempting as it might be, not do what... Um, I went, when I was a boy, I used to go across to... The, the, over the road there, there was something called the, the Odeon Cinema, and it was Saturday matinee. And if they, they didn't like a film, they'd shout, chuck it off, chuck it off. And for those of you who, for whom your English is your second language, chuck it off is a way of saying, we don't like this film, but it's not a very polite way to say it. So don't use the expression, chuck it off. But it might just be possible that at times, maybe more than we are aware of, that the fault may lie with us. And that our inattention might lead us to miss something life-changing. As I reminded you this morning, I told you a, a story against myself at school. Well, um, that can happen in church as well as at school and yes I have to confess it's happened to me at least once 
A little sleep, a little slumber, says the proverb, folding of the hands of rest. It would lead to poverty, but it might not just be to physical poverty or scarcity, but spiritual poverty if you're in church, and you might miss something that will stand you in good stead, not only for this life, but for eternity. As I say, I don't speak from any pedestal of superiority here. I have to confess I was in another church in Hounslow back in the 1960s when I was in my teens. I think my friend and I had been out late the previous night. And, uh, well, yes, I did drift off a bit at church, but I was bestirred to humbling alertness as the last hymn was announced. Christians seek not yet repose. And my then church used a hymn book which placed a Bible verse above each hymn. And the text in this case was the AV in those days, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore let us not sleep as others do. I've remembered that lesson. But properly to hear God's voice, we need more than simply to listen to God's word. We need to learn God's word. I have, says the author of Psalm 119, hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A well-grounded Christian can use God's word skillfully and effectively as what the Apostle Paul calls the sword of the Spirit. In the spiritual battle, he or she will constantly have to fight. That's why some people find it helpful to memorize verses of Scripture. And We're better to view this skillful and relevant application of God's word than the the life of the Lord Jesus. Many Christians reflect on this, particularly at Lent, which commemorates the going of the Lord Jesus into the desert, the wilderness. And in his example we have in Luke chapter 4 and in Matthew's gospel, we see a sad contrast to how Israel in the desert responded to God's word, which is referred to in Psalm 95, in verses 8 and 10, and we read Exodus 17 in that regard. The Lord, when he was in the desert and being tempted by the devil, showed that he'd not only been listening to God's word, but he had learned it well enough to to use it as a weapon against the devil's tempting assaults on him. But speaking of the Lord in the desert, the devil also knows the Bible, knows it well enough to know how to subtly to misquote it, as he did Psalm 91, the Lord in the desert, only in his case, it was unsuccessful. Which leads me on to say that properly to hear God's voice, it's not enough to listen to God's word or even to learn God's word. You need to love God's word. Satan knows God's word probably better than any of us, almost certainly, but he doesn't love God's word. Loving God's word is the mark of the true Christian. Even when, like Paul, you may be battling with indwelling sin, as he describes his inner conflict at the end of Romans chapter 7, he he can still, as can you, even if you have to say, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me, you can also with him say, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. If we truly love God's word, this will lead us to live God's word, not to harden our, harden our hearts, but to receive and to take it in and love it and then to live it. We must, as the hymn puts it, worship not only with the lip alone, but also with a life that is shaped by a trustful, obedient, 
response to God's word. The story is told that at the end of one Sunday service, one member of the congregation, about to leave, turned to his neighbour and said, and now the sermon begins. Not for the lip of praise alone. The pastor preached a challenging sermon on his first Sunday in his new church. It was much appreciated, but to the congregation's slight surprise, he repeated it at the evening service. Church leaders pricked up their ears on this, and one said to another after the service, well, he's only just moved in, probably hasn't had time to unpack his books and prepare something new. So they let it go until the following Sunday when, in the morning, he preached a sermon for the third time. And by the time it came to the evening service, and you guessed it, he preached it for a fourth time, the church officers decided to call an impromptu elders and deacons meeting, where they tentatively raised the matter of the repeated sermon. Uh, it's about the sermon pastor, said the fair spokesman. Great sermon, but um, we were just wondering when you planned to give us the next one. Well, replied the pastor, when I see you putting this one into practice, I'll give you the next one. Living out what we learn is actually a form of worship. We might call it the indirect worship of God, which must exist alongside direct worship of God when we, our hearts go out to him in prayer and praise and song and, 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 and speaking to him in prayer and praise and singing. But uh, to, in every part of our life, that should be an act of worship. And of course, it's a case of what Paul says, doing everything to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, or as John Piper says, it, do all to the glory of God, even drinking a glass of orange. Google up John Piper drinking a glass of orange to the glory of God and you'll see what he means. Think about what you, how you can best glorify God and it can make you very searching at times in all sorts of practical ways. Without the worship of our lives being, albeit imperfectly, in sync with the worship of our lips, the latter will evoke from God the sort of reaction he once expressed through the prophet Isaiah. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your life and your lips, your living and your worship are not in sync. The Lord Jesus called it what it was, hypocrisy, this inconsistency. And here in verse 8 of the psalm, Psalm 95 warns us not to doubt God's word by testing him rather than trusting him, as did his people in the desert when they doubted his goodness and ability to provide for them. The psalmist has in mind that, that reading in Exodus we had, in Exodus 17, 1-7, where Israel put God to the test by doubting that he could, or, he could or would provide water, doubting his power and doubting his goodness. And the author of Hebrews actually latches on to this, having quoted this third section of the psalm we're looking at now, and it's warning not to harden our hearts when hearing God's voice. He exhorts his New Testament readers, including you and me, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And what made matters worse in the case of the Israelites was that they hardened their hearts in spite of God having already given abundant proof of his care for them. Look at verse 9 of the psalm. 
Though they had seen what the Lord did, even though they'd seen the wonders, how he delivered them from Egypt spectacularly with signs and wonders and had already provided for them in the desert. And that only made their guilt worse. Yet despite all this, this abundant proof of his being with them and his goodness, their hearts remain hardened. Sadly too in this gospel age, persistent hardening of heart despite clear preaching will only make matters worse, make our guilt worse, possibly missing God's final heavenly rest as did the Israelites their promised land. Think for example of the letter of the Galatians to whom Paul had in exasperation to write, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Paul had painted a graphic picture of the Saviour giving himself for them. And yet, and then they tried to do their bit to add to it. May the Lord help us not to resist God's word as did Israel in the desert, but to respond by our lives to God's word as our spiritual act of worship, as well as with our lips, as Paul exhorts us to do when he calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice in Romans 12. So to conclude, in light of all this, I wonder how God has been speaking to us lately. Wasn't it when you were growing up, you had a a mentor, um, and he used to say, well, brother, what's the Lord been speaking to you this week? And uh, his name escapes me at the moment. But so I, I remember him. Derek Swan used to say at his church, he lift, when he prayed, he lifted the whole tone of the, the prayer meeting. Fred Newport. And, uh, well, we, I, I'm not going to ask you personally, but uh, God may have been speaking to you in different ways. What word in season are you not listening to? Am I not listening to? Maybe we need a word of guidance to understand more clearly God's will for our lives. I trust not, but it could be some of us need a word of rebuke and challenge not to harden our hearts. Maybe what many of us, though, need in these uncertain times is what the servant of the Lord in Isaiah calls a word to sustain the weary, to encourage us to keep on keeping on, a word of reassurance for a fearful situation, like take courage, or some of us may need the word from the God of all comfort. And I know the way that you take when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Or take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. God wants you to respond to a word like that by taking to heart, by faith, the encouragement that he himself has given you. But are you, am I, by faith taking to heart this God-given encouragement? We should should because the Lord is indeed in control and he deserves our worship by rejoicing in him, with reverence for him, and by responsiveness to him. May God enable us by his grace to do just that. As we continue to reflect on this theme, I thought we'd close by singing, if you've got a book, it's 554, the words will appear, Help us, O Lord, to learn the truths your word imparts, to study that your laws may be inscribed upon our hearts and might love them. Help us, O Lord, to live the faith which we proclaim, that all our thoughts and words and deeds may glorify your name. Help us, O Lord, to teach the beauty of your ways, that all who seek may find the Christ and sing aloud his praise. Five, five, four.